The scripture reading this morning is from 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 22. Please open your Bibles. If you're using the Pew Bible, the verses are found on page 161 in the New Testament. Again, 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 22. Hear the word of the Lord. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Lord God, there is there's nothing that we could give to you that would be adequate. Uh, there, There is no worship that we could offer that would be pure and acceptable. Lord, as much as our renewed hearts want to Give unto you that which you deserve. We are not yet able to do that in your grace the way that we should. And uh, Father, we thank you for Christ. And we thank you that through the blood of Jesus Christ and his death and by the power of his resurrection, there, we can rest confidently in the reality that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus what we long to give to you and yet are unable to give to you, Lord, we are not condemned for that in Christ Jesus because he gave that which you deserve in our place. He gave you the worship. He lived a perfect, holy life that we can't live. He died the atoning death that we we in ourselves would never be able to satisfy. He rose again from the dead, triumphing over death and hell and the grave, conquering our sin, standing in victory for us and on our behalf. Lord, thank you for Christ. Thank you for the gospel and that in Christ we can worship you in holiness and righteousness all our days without fear. That there's no reason to fear our failings and our stumblings. But Lord, we can continue moving forward. Though we fall seven times, we can get up in the grace of Christ and we can keep moving forward. Thank you for grace. Lord, I pray that you would would help us this morning to taste just a little more of the power of your grace in our lives. And, uh, And we do pray for that lightning bolt from heaven to strike in upon us, God, that, that the glory of heaven would break in over us and that we would be revived. Turn our eyes away from looking at vain things, Lord, and revive us in your ways. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today's our third Sunday in this short little study on revival and um, taking a break from our normal walk through the Gospel of John to uh, 
talk about revival, and most of you understand why we're doing that. It's because of uh, what has been called the Asbury Revival, and um, the events that have been reported to have taken place at Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky. Um, we've been trying to think through this claim to revival and trying just really to grasp our, gra uh, grab a hold of this idea, this concept of revival, so that we can then evaluate the, what's claimed to be the Asbury revival and determine whether or not it's truly a move and a work of God's spirit or if it's all of the flesh and needs to be rejected. Uh, we've, I've been trying to guard us from being reactionary in, in how we approach this issue with, with what's gone on in Asbury. I, I don't think we need to come at it immediately saying, yes, it is, no, it's not, of the Lord. We need to take time, and we need to take enough time to be sure that we're speaking confidently in regard to our evaluation of this incident. So... On one side, you have those who are claiming that this is a true work of the Spirit of God. On the other side, the opposite side, they are claiming that it is a fake revival. And we're simply trying to ask ourselves, how should we think about this? How should we think through it? So in, in, in the spirit of 1 Thessalonians 5, 19 through 22, we want to find the mature, uh, we want to find that line of mature balance as we approach this issue. We don't want to be lopsided. We, we, we want to make sure that we're not quenching the Spirit. We're not despising a true work of the Spirit of God that may be taking place in our day. That, that's a very serious sin against the Spirit of the Lord and one that gets very close to blaspheming the work of the Spirit and calling the work that He's doing evil when in fact the work that He does is good. We've got to be on guard against that and we have to be careful and take Jesus' warning seriously that those who blaspheme the Spirit of the Lord cannot be forgiven either in this age nor in the age to come. So we want to be careful that we're not quenching the Spirit of the Lord, that we're not despising the work of His hands. And then on the other side, we want to make sure that we're not being gullible and spiritually naive. And uh, we want to examine everything carefully and hold fast to that which is good. And so that's what we're seeking to do right now. Now, as we seek to do that in relation to something claiming to be a revival, we have to begin with, the, with a few basic considerations. And that's what we're, we're working through right now. Last week, we ended in the middle of the third consideration. Originally, there were only four, but I'm going to give you an extra one. And so now there are five considerations as we evaluate revival. First thing, the first thing that we looked at uh, in relation to approaching and evaluating something called revival is just recognizing the fact that church history is a history of revival. Church history is peppered and, and just uh, replete with examples of God's saving work coming with extraordinary power uh, into the lives of his people and, and really not only invigorating his church and reviving his church, but also uh, renovating and awakening the whole community and society in which that church is planted. Church history is filled with examples like that, and so we don't need to come at something like Asbury saying, well, that's not what the Lord does anymore. Well, when we have clear history throughout the history of God's people that God has been doing that uh, at least for 3,500 years. 
Uh, and secondly, we tried to get our, our, our minds, in our minds, a clear understanding of what revival actually is. Revival is not emotionalism. Revival is not hype. Revival is not revivalism. So it's not, it's not tent meetings and fiery evangelists and somebody screaming at you, banging the Bible, as much as I may do that at times. Um, that's not what revival is. That's revivalism. That's trying to work something up and to generate something. Uh, uh, by the, the, the uh, craft and the power of man. That's not what happens in times of revival. In times of revival, there is a surprising supernatural work of the Spirit of God that takes place. It's surprising because it's not something that we are trying to drum up on our own. It's, it's the Spirit of the Lord breaking in upon His people. It, it's coming with a, the Spirit comes with suddenness and with a power that causes us to be enlivened in our hearts in relation to the reality of God. And so it's God moving with sovereign might by His Spirit to infuse fresh spiritual life and power into His church. And that leads to an awakening that sweeps across the entire community. So... This is, we want to have this in mind as we approach Asbury and evaluating whether or not it's a real revival. We need to, okay, what is revival? Have that in our minds and then have that in mind so that we can compare Asbury to it, right? And that led us to the third consideration, uh, which is uh, what happens when true revival comes to the church? When true revival comes, there are certain characteristics that will always be present uh, in true revival. Uh, we've, we've noted a, a few of those, right? But we remember Jesus' words in relation to false teachers and false prophets. How are we going to discern those who are genuine and those who are false? Jesus says in Matthew 7, 16, you're going to know them by their fruits. You're going to know false teachers by the fruits of their lives. You pay attention to their fruits, not the words of their lips. You pay attention to the way they're living their lives and you can determine whether or not someone is a false prophet. Well, in the same way, we can bring that principle to bear upon things like revival. How do we know that something is a true or a false revival? Well, we will know by its fruits. And uh, we've looked at three of those already. The first one is that fruit of God's presence. The true revival will bring an arresting awareness of the presence of God. And I choose that word arresting very purposefully and carefully it is an arresting sensation that comes upon you when God allows you to know his manifest presence. Not that you're seeing lights, not that you're, you're beholding his glory with your eyes, but there's this, there's this um, um, perception of his nearness that comes in times of revival that's unique, that, that's uncharacteristic of the norm. Um, and as I quoted to you guys what other guys have said about this, J.I. Packer, for example, described what happens in relation to revival as the near presence of God giving new life and power to the gospel. Right? It's uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's the immediate awareness of the presence of God. That's the first fruit that comes about during times of revival. Daniel Rowland, during times of revival in the 1700s, described it as uh, only, only able to describe it as being swallowed up in God. Uh, G. Campbell, uh, excuse me, not G. Campbell Morgan, uh, Duncan Campbell, uh, again in 1949, spoke of the revival on the Isle of Lewis as an awareness of God that gripped the whole community. 
So revival is, 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 it begins with this fruit of God drawing near to his people in an unmistakable way. Where he is recognized uh, for who he is. And his nearness is, uh, is very evident. And then that leads to a second fruit of revival, which is a penetrating awareness of grief. A penetrating awareness of and grief over sin. When you are awakened to God's presence and the reality of his glory, the one thing that is magnified more clearly to your own soul is your own unworthiness and sinfulness in his presence. If, if there is not an awakening of the reality that I am a sinner and I am in need of salvation, then there has not been an awakening to the reality of God's nearness. And we saw that with Job, right? We saw that with Isaiah. As soon as they had a greater perception of the reality of God, what was their immediate response? They pronounced a curse upon themselves and they repented before the Lord. There's this, there's this awakening sense of sin within us. It causes us to see our own unworthiness in the presence of God more clearly when God draws near. So that will be a second fruit that will attend revival. And it, it will always come with revival. An awareness, a penetrating awareness of sin. That leads to the third fruit, right? And this is where we ended last week. So all this has been recap. We'll see where we get today. We may have part four, Corbin. I don't know. But that leads to probably the most important sign of true revival, which is uh, the preciousness of Christ and his saving work becoming utterly captivating. <laughs> Where the beauty of what Christ has done to save your soul from your sins is no longer something that you've learned by rote, it's, no, it's not just a tradition that you've held to or, or even something that you confess without very much feeling of heart. In that, that is a common experience to the Christian. At times, we must preach the truth to our own souls. And in those times, we don't feel the glory of those truths. That's why we're preaching, right? We're saying, why are you in despair, O my soul? Hope in God. You will yet again praise Him for the help of His presence. There are times when we have to do that. But in times of revival, that is not characteristic. That's not the norm. The norm in times of revival is this overwhelming sense of the preciousness of Christ. As Richard Sibbs said in the Puritan in the 1600s, he said, those ages wherein the Spirit of God is most present are those ages wherein Christ is most preached. Where people long for more of Christ, that's where the Spirit of God is working more abundantly, right? I mean, and that's the Spirit's work. John 15, 26, Jesus says, when the, when the Helper comes, when the Spirit comes, He will come to testify about me. So during times of revival, when the Spirit of the Lord is truly awakening the people of God unto the glory of God, we ought to expect to hear people talking much about Jesus, testifying to His glory, His reality, their hope in Him. John 16, 14, when the spirit of truth comes, he will glorify me, Jesus says. That goes beyond merely giving us an understanding of the truth about Jesus. That's giving us a sense of glory as we, 
as we consider those truths about Jesus. Remember in Psalm 29, it speaks about everyone in God's temple. What is their response as they're worshiping God in his temple? The only thing they can do when they're overwhelmed by the presence of God is to cry out, glory! That's Psalm 29. When the Spirit of God is bringing revival and bringing the truths of Christ to bear upon our souls with reviving, quickening power, our response to those truths will be glory. It will be glory. Jonathan Edwards, he wrote that during the time of the Great Awakening, what he saw happening when the Spirit was bringing revival to the lives of the people, he said, there was a raised esteem for Jesus Christ. Now, that's, that's somewhat subdued in, in the description there. He goes on to, to describe it more fully as an admiring and delightful sense of the excellencies of Jesus. An admiring and a delightful sense of the excellencies of Jesus. Where it becomes Jesus, the truths of Jesus become like honey to your tongue. You're tasting the sweet reality of what Jesus has done for you. Not just an increased mental conception of it or a theoretical speculation concerning whether or not Jesus is true and whether or not his death has really covered my sins, preaching to my soul to hope in God. None of that is involved in times of revival. In times of revival, the Spirit brings into our hearts an increased affectionate attraction to Jesus. So we're drawn to him. So we, we become the bride in Song of Solomon, just crying out for Christ to draw us after him and let us run together. Now oh, we need to move on. But that's the third fruit. And I would say that's the most important fruit of revival. There's this increased attraction this, to Jesus Christ. There's this increased sense of the preciousness of what Christ has done to save sinners like us. Now, there are two more I'm going to give you, and then we're going to move into some other things. But number, number four, the fourth fruit that will accompany revival. In revival, the power of God's word is unleashed. In times of revival, the power of God's word will be unleashed. Now, what I mean to communicate by that is that revival is not produced by the creative power of man. Revival is not produced by gimmicks and scheming and manipulative tactics. It is, it is brought about and it focuses in upon the unadulterated word of Jesus Christ and him crucified. When the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified is what is captivating hearts... The power of the word of God is being unleashed and revival is truly happening. In times of revival, the Holy Spirit causes the power of the message of Christ to run unhindered through the church and the world. Now, in a sense, in, in its essence, there's nothing unusual about that fruit of revival in its essence. Because that's really, in its essence, the normal work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of a believer. All right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 to 5, it tells us that the Holy Spirit is the one who is responsible for applying the power of the word to the hearts of sinners and bringing them to a solid conviction of its truthfulness. 
Who causes us to believe that the Bible is literally the word of God? Was it some argument that some preacher gave us? Was it some 10,000 evidence list that demands a verdict? Is that what caused us to believe that when we pick up this book, we are hearing God speak to our souls? That's not what made us believe. The only thing that makes us believe is the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. That when we pick up the word, when we, when we read in the scriptures, we feel the power of God's voice penetrating into our souls because the Holy Spirit is taking that word and causing it to penetrate. Right? That's the illuminating work of the Spirit of God. And I would say that's his normal work. That's what he does in the life of every single true believer. He does this in the life of every believer. And by the way, according to this verse, this is how our election is made manifest. Have you ever wondered whether or not you're among God's elect? Whether or not you are truly a chosen child of God? If you doubt election is in the Bible, come talk to me afterwards and I'll show you everywhere where election is present. Romans 9, Ephesians 1, Matthew 11, John 10, the whole gospel of John, John chapter 6, Revelation Anyway, have you ever doubted whether or not I am, I am of God's elect people? Well, here Paul says, knowing brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you, literally his election of you. How do we know that? Because when we came to you, our gospel did not come to you in word only. It came in power and it came in the Holy Spirit and it came with full conviction. How do you know whether you're a child of God chosen by his grace? What effect and what impact does the Word of God have upon you? If you can pick up the Word of God and see nothing glorious in it, nothing attractive in it, nothing that's shaping your mind and, and fashioning your heart to be more and more like Christ, if you're not meeting God when you're in His Word, then you have right to ask whether or not you truly are among the elect. Now, it doesn't mean that every single time you pick up the Bible, it's going to be the angels singing the hallelujah chorus over your soul. But it, it does mean that there's this, there's this consistent progression of, of being brought more and more to know God with a true heart and mind as you, as you come to know him through his word. There's this power to the word that works itself into your life. So that's, how, that's even how our election is revealed. It's the effect of the word of God upon our souls by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, just, yeah, so just listen. I just read those. I don't need you to listen to them again. But the, the effect of the word, the word of God, the gospel of Christ, and the totality of that message as it's revealed through all the pages of Scripture, not just the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified, not just those words, but Jesus Christ and Him crucified revealed from Genesis to Revelation. When that message is being brought to bear upon your soul and you're coming to know the reality of Jesus, that is the work of the Holy Spirit moving upon your heart. That is a sure sign of the Holy Spirit's presence and work in you. Not signs and wonders and miracles and all kinds of emotional nonsense. But what does, the, what does the Word of God do to my heart when I'm before it? What does God do in me when I'm sitting under His Word, listening to His will, thinking through His message? That is a sure sign that the Spirit is at work in us. When the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and presses its reality and truthfulness upon us, 
with such power that we are left with no argument against it and no choice but to receive it. You know the Holy Spirit is working in your heart when he is taking the word of God and pressing its reality and truthfulness upon you with such power that you have no argument against it and no choice but to receive it. You know in that moment by the Spirit's grace that this is not the word of men. It is the very word of God. And as 1 Thessalonians 2.13 says, the Holy Spirit continues performing that work in the life of a believer, causing the word of God to continue to perform its work in us who believe. So there's this continual aspect to that. So that's the normal work of the Holy Spirit, right? That's what he's doing in every believer's life. The only difference between what the Spirit is normally doing with God's Word in the life of a believer and what he does during times of revival is that in times of revival, the power and the effect of God's Word in the church is exponentially increased and continues permeating through the entire society. That's revival. Paul described this, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1. He described this as the Holy Spirit causing the word to spread or to run rapidly, run unhindered, and to be glorified. He's not, notice the language he uses there. He says, pray that the word of the Lord would spread rapidly, would run unhindered and be glorified. That's what happens in times of revival. Acts 19.20, this is my favorite description of what happens with the word of God in times of revival. Acts 19.20, it says that when the spirit brings revival, he causes the word of God, he causes the word of the Lord to grow mightily and to prevail. That's conquering language. That's military language right there. The, the word of God is going forth like a warrior and he is subduing sinners under it. Well, it is subduing sinners under its authority. It's tearing down strongholds. It's, it's uprooting the work of Satan. It's causing the people of, that, that used to be sinners to be broken and humbled before God. And it leaves in its wake a people who are clinging to Christ. That's what it looks like when the word of the Lord spreads mightily. It grows mightily and prevails among a society. That's a sign of revival. And... And alongside that, Acts chapter 4, verse 31. When the church is being filled with fresh life and power by the Holy Spirit in times of revival, the most immediate effect is that the church continues to speak God's word with boldness in the midst of opposition. So... <laughs> If we want to look around at something that's claiming to be a revival in our day, one of the first questions we need to ask is, is the word of God being heralded from them with greater boldness than it was before? Or is there greater compromise of the word in the midst of the culture? When the spirit of God is moving, he will not allow the church to compromise the message of truth. And that's how you know, okay, that's how you know after the, over the last 15, 20 years, this resurgence of Reformed theology, that's how you know much of that was just of the flesh and not a work of the Spirit. Because those same guys that I would have stood with 15 years ago declaring the gospel of Christ 
are the same guys that are corrupting that gospel now with critical race theory nonsense. That is demonic. I'll die on that hill. (laughs) Critical race theory does not uphold the gospel or the value or dignity of any human being. It's a tool used to further an agenda. Nothing more than that. Anyway, that's, that's a side note. But when the, I mean, look at this. When they had prayed, you know, Peter and John and many of the other apostles are here with the believers at this point. They've already been filled with the Spirit in Acts chapter 2. And yet here it says, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the Word of God with boldness. That means there's a greater filling of the Holy Spirit to be had than even what we might know. And when that, when that filling comes in times of revival, one of the most immediate fruits will be a boldness to declare the word of God among the society, regardless of the opposition. So number five, that's number four. The, word, the power of the word of God is unleashed in times of revival. Number five, as a result of true revival, God's people will be filled with a greater longing for holiness. It says here, revival makes God's people long for holiness. I don't know if you know this. I don't want to speak condescendingly, but I don't want to assume anything either. I don't know if you know this, but holiness is the purpose behind everything that God does in your life. Holiness. John chapter 17, verse 17, Jesus says this is the whole function of the word of God in our lives. He prayed as our great high priest that God would sanctify us, his father would sanctify us in the truth. Where's the truth found? It's in the word. Jesus prays that the word of God would sanctify us or make us holy with the truth, that God would do that work in our hearts. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10 When God's true people begin to sin against him and go off the rails, what does God do? As a loving, faithful father, does he let them continue to live a life of sin? No, that would be a derelict father. That would be a father who did not care, a father who did not love his children. That's the father who doesn't discipline his children and teach them the right way, a father that doesn't care about them. That's not God. When God's children sin against him and begin to veer off the straight and narrow path, God comes with correcting power like a loving father. He comes and disciplines them. And what's the purpose or the aim of that discipline? It's that we might share in his holiness. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10. That we would share in his holiness. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24. It describes the whole essence of of the new spiritual life that has been purchased for us in Christ. It describes the whole essence of that life as a new life of righteousness and holiness. When the new life of Christ, in other words, is coming into our hearts and we are putting on that new man by God's grace and we're putting off the old man, the things that increase in our lives are the things of righteousness. They're the things of holiness. We begin walking as children of light because we have been birthed out of light. Holiness. Romans 12.1. Right? What is the, the substance and the essence of all of our worship that we offer back unto God with our entire lives? What is the essence of it? Is it not offering to God our bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to the Lord? 
That's supposed to be the, the, the quality of your entire life. It's, it's a life of holiness that's offered as an act of worship to God. So if that's God's normal purpose and work in our lives, is to bring us to greater, a greater uh, level of holiness, sanctity, then wherever there is a true revival birthed by the Holy Spirit, there will be a reviving of holiness. And where there is no increased yearning for practical holiness, there is no true revival. Where there's no increased yearning and longing and hungering and thirsting for righteousness and holiness, when that has not increased among a people, then revival has not yet come. Now, I think the most important thing to understand about this yearning after holiness is its motivation. Why are God's people left yearning for greater and greater holiness in times of revival? Well, it's not legalism, right? We're not trying to be holy as God is holy so that we can somehow earn God's favor. We're not not trying to coerce God and make him make ourselves good enough for God to accept us. That's not the Christian life. That's not the gospel message. That might be Roman Catholicism. That might be every other form of religion on the face of the earth. Even those that claim to be Christian like Mormonism and Jehovah Witness. It may be even forms of oneness Pentecostalism and all kinds of charismatic charismania. They may all say that kind of nonsense, but that's not what the Bible says. So when we're talking about the Spirit of God awakening in us a hunger for holiness, we are not talking about the motivation being earning God's favor. We're not talking about legalism. When we experience greater fellowship in the Holy Spirit during times of revival, the motivation behind pursuing greater holiness is the fear of losing the fellowship with the Spirit we've now discovered. When we experience greater fellowship with the Holy Spirit in times of revival, the greatest fear in our hearts will be sinning his sensed presence away. This is what David was talking about, by the way, in Psalm 51, when he said, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Take not thy spirit from me. What is he talking about? This is what he's talking about. The reality of God's presence in his life. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Uh, Actually, maybe I should start here. Does anyone agree with, does anyone, well, I can't ask if you disagree because you won't raise your hand. In your own heart, determine what, don't raise any hands, I don't want to see that hand anywhere. Determine in your own heart, do you agree with what I just said or not? Do you agree that when we experience greater fellowship with the Holy Spirit, our greatest fear will be sinning that greater sensed presence of the Spirit away. If you agree, if you disagree, let me try and show you where I get that from Scripture. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30 tells us very plainly that you and I can grieve the Holy Spirit. Paul says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So two things there. Paul's writing to true believers. 
Because they've been sealed by the Spirit for the day of redemption. That is, they've been taken by the Holy Spirit and they've been gathered together as God's own special possession. His inheritance, right? So we're talking about believers. And then Paul gives the command not to grieve the Holy Spirit. Which means that even as believers, sealed by His grace, we can grieve Him. We can grieve Him. That word for grieve, it, it, it speaks of being irritated or offended at someone, maybe even insulted. So even as believers, we can live our lives in such a way that we can offend and insult the Holy Spirit of grace. Now in the Old Testament, what happens when God's people live in a way that grieves him? Does he give them a greater sense of fellowship with him, or does he withdraw from them? He withdraws. Now, he does not forsake his people. He never forsakes his covenant people, ever. But he does withdraw his special presence from them. Hosea chapter 5, verse 15. In the midst of speaking to uh, his sinful people, he tells them, I will go away and I will return to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. Now remember last week we talked about God's face being used in place of God's nearness. So when we're talking about seeking God's face and seeking, uh, seeking the face of the Lord, we're talking about seeking the nearness of the Lord. And you can get that from Psalm 105, where we are commanded as, as the people of God to seek the Lord and His presence, seek His face continually. Right? So those two things, those two realities are together. God says, I'm going to hide my face from you I'm going to go away until you acknowledge your guilt and confess it to me. Until you seek me with genuineness and in sincerity, I'm going to hide myself from you. Now, according to Romans chapter 15, verse 4, and 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 and 11, everything that was written in the Old Testament was written for our instruction as believers so that we would learn not to make the same mistakes other people made. So there's something for us to learn here. In Hosea chapter 5, verse 15, even as Christians, what are we to learn here? Well, we are to learn, in relation to Ephesians 4.30, that grieving the Holy Spirit is something we ought not do, and that when we grieve the Holy Spirit, though it is impossible to sin His presence completely out of our lives, as a believer, as a child of God, you cannot sin in such a way that it causes the Spirit of God to depart from you. That would be undoing the saving work of Jesus Christ. And your sin is not powerful enough to do that. The blood of Jesus Christ has already broken the power of your sin if you are a believer. So no matter what sin you commit against Christ, it cannot sin the presence of the Holy Spirit entirely out of your heart. However... You can live in such a way that the Holy Spirit is grieved over your life and in a way where he will keep the fullness of his presence withdrawn from you because you cannot be trusted with it. There are great privileges that I cannot wait for my children to receive as they get older, as they get more mature. I can't wait to teach Addie how to shoot my 9 millimeter. 
I really can't. Yeah. I know that puts me, did somebody clap there? Yeah. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Yes. I know that puts me in a certain camp politically, blah, 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 in the minds of, of people. But that's a, f- I can't wait. I can't wait. I can't wait till, till we get her a compound bow and she and I can shoot bow and arrows together. We can go hunting if, if she can stomach killing a deer. No. If I ever have the time, right? There are privileges that I cannot wait for my children to get. Yesterday, at Jess and Kate's wedding, that was another privilege that, that even as I'm, I'm interacting with Kate's dad, Tom, and that man, could, that man was a sweetheart, man. He could not talk about his daughter without welling up with tears. And all I could think, and I, and I said this to him, I said, all I could think about when he's talking about his daughter is the fact that I'm going to have to go through this three times. Three times I'm going to have to marry off my daughters. Right? But that's a privilege. That's, that's, a, that's a grace that when they are mature enough to receive it, and when God in his grace ordains that time for them to receive it, they'll receive it, but not before then. You know, that's, there are parallels between things like that and our walk with the Holy Spirit. There are depths in our fellowship and relationship with God that we cannot be trusted with from the first moment we're saved. We have to grow into maturity. We have uh, Hebrews chapter 5 and 6. It talks about moving on from the elementary principles of the gospel and getting into real meat, getting into substance of Christ. There are, levels, there are levels of gifting and grace that we have to mature in order to be responsible enough to handle them. So it is with the Holy Spirit. If you want more of the Spirit's presence in your life, then you cannot be living a life of sin. And in times of revival, the greatest concern that we have is to live in such a manner, in such holiness, that we do not grieve the Holy Spirit's presence, but we actually live in such a way that it invites more of his fullness into our lives. Not that we can control that, but we can live in a way that doesn't grieve him. In times of revival, the fullness of the Holy Spirit comes over his people, and his people are left delighting in and yearning after holiness because that is the pathway to sustained fellowship with God. Isn't that what Jesus taught us? Holiness is the pathway to sustained fellowship with God in our experience. John chapter 14, verse 21, what did Jesus say? If you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. If you love me and keep my commandments, you're going to be loved by my Father. I will love you, and what will I do for you, Jesus says. I will disclose myself to you. I will unveil myself to you. I will make myself known to you. To who? To the one who loves him enough to obey his commandments. See, the path to greater fellowship with Christ, here described as him disclosing himself to us, the pathway to that blessing is obedience to his will. It's holiness. You can't can't live in such a way that you're neglecting the, the revealed will of Christ. You can't live in a way where you are not obeying the explicit commands of Jesus Christ and then expect for his nearness to be dumped in upon you. Jesus has already given us the instruction. The the pathway to fellowship with him in greater measure is the pathway of holy obedience. 
So in times of revival, that sense of God's glorious presence is increased and believers don't want to lose this treasure of deep fellowship that they have now experienced with God. So they draw nearer and nearer to him on that highway of holiness that Isaiah talks about. Uh, these are the five definite signs of revival. Nah. These are five definite signs of revival. We could add others. We could mention others, such as a revival will bring a, uh, a greater love for God and for neighbor, uh, not only in our heart of hearts, but in practical ways it will be manifest. We will love God more fully. We will love our neighbor more sacrificially and more joyfully. Right? So we're not, we're not begrudging giving to our neighbor what he or she needs, that cup of sugar that may be our last cup of sugar that our neighbor needs from us. We're happy to share with him. We're happy to give it. That kind of love for neighbor and God will be uh, heightened in times of revival. Uh, revival will bring real and lasting change to the lives of individuals and to the lives of societies. It will not last necessarily forever. But a lightning bolt that sets a forest on fire, that fire is going to burn until there's nothing left to burn. Same way in revival. When the Holy Spirit quickens and awakens his people, that fire of the Spirit of the Lord is going to burn. And it's going to have an impact, not only in their lives that's lasting, but also in the society that's lasting. The, uh, uh, yeah, I already said that. The impact on the whole society when revival comes. And then one that we don't like to necessarily claim or think about, but revival will also bring increased suffering and persecution to the church. Because there will be this greater conflict between light and darkness taking place. And it, it will, by necessity, be inviting persecution. We try to live in ways that keep us under the radar, right? I remember, I, oh man, I remember when I was at basic training in Paris Island, South Carolina, the first thing I realized that I needed to do when I stepped off the bus and I put my feet on those yellow prints, was I needed to figure out how not to be noticed in this place. I need to figure out how to fly under the radar. I do not want my drill instructor knowing who I am. <laughs> and not, at least not until I graduate. <laughs> you know, like, we often live the Christian life like that. I, I want to be, I want to fly under the radar. I don't want the world to notice me. I don't want the devil to pay attention to me. I don't want to invite the kind of suffering and opposition and persecution that the gospel brings. But beloved, we have to keep in mind the words of scripture where 2 Timothy 3.12 tells us everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you desire to actually live a godly life in Christ Jesus, that's going to have an impact on every area of your life. That's what it means to live a life of godliness. Not just to claim godliness, but to actually put godliness into practice. When you begin doing that in your workplace, when you begin doing that in your neighborhood, when you begin doing that in your own families, it's going to invite opposition. Don't you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 10? Don't think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. And a man's enemies are going to be the people of his own household. 
In times of revival, the church will be living with such, a, such spiritual caliber that it will require and necessitate that the world respond to it in, in measure. <laughs> the world will oppose the church. It's, it's just the simple principle of the kingdom of darkness opposing the kingdom of light. The good news is that the kingdom of darkness won't prevail. And Jesus said the, the gates of Hades will not prevail against my church. And in times of revival, what do we see? We see the kingdom of light expanding, increasing, growing, advancing. So that's, that's a sign of revival. Now, I, I think I'm going to end here today. And we'll, you called it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You are a prophet. And let no one say that Corbin is not a prophet. Uh, <laughs> We'll end here today. Let me, let me end on this, my evaluation of Asbury. In light of what we've seen, can we say that Asbury is or is not a true revival? I don't know that I can speak definitively to this issue because I'm not at Asbury. I'm not in Wilmore, Kentucky. I, I did not experience any of this personally, so I'm, I'm coming at this from an, from, with an outsider's perspective, okay? And I'm, and I'm only able to look at the facts that are being given to me. There, there are many things that happen there that you and I will never know about, at least not until the day of glory. But the things that I know lead me to say that Asbury, honestly, as I consider it, Asbury is probably... Okay, let me put it this way. Was the Asbury revival genuine, a true work of the Spirit of God? Based on my limited perspective, I have to say both yes and no. Yes and no. So for me, it's a mixed bag. Good and bad. If I... In saying yes to the Asbury revival being a true move of the Spirit of God, I believe that I can say yes more confidently as I consider the beginning of that revival. So particularly the first eight days, okay, I, I believe that something genuine and true of, of God's Spirit was taking place during that time. Uh, you have believers being stirred up to pray Isn't that a sign of revival? I mean, this many people are not here on Wednesday nights or Wednesday mornings or even Sunday mornings praying. So whenever God's people gather together with a special purpose and focus of prayer, a burden to pray, that's got to be a move of the Spirit, right? You should hear in that a rebuke. If you can make it to prayer on Wednesday nights or Wednesday mornings, you should make it. Make it a priority. If you can't make it, I understand there are various things going on. But Okay, back to Asbury. Yes, I believe, especially at the beginning, that Asbury was a true move of the Spirit of God. One, you have believers being spontaneously stirred up to really focus in on prayer, right? And they're praying all day long and through the night. I mean, we're talking about an extended time period of prayer. That's not natural. The focus early on was on the love of God in Christ. That was the message that was preached just before this work of God began to take place there. 
This, this man spoke about the fullness and the greatness of the love of God that's been revealed in Christ Jesus. And that led people to want to pray and to seek God's face. How could that not have been birthed by the Spirit of God? No one can call Jesus Lord except by the Spirit. If you have a desire to seek Christ, that is from the Spirit. As one person said, the, the atmosphere changed and God seemed to draw near. And what was the immediate result? Sin began to be confessed. There was an increased focus on singing the praises of God, which, though some people today think that that's not a mark of the Spirit of God, it shows more of our own deadness than it does our knowledge of the Spirit's work. Because Jonathan Edwards and Martin Luther would vehemently disagree with us. Uh, Martin Luther wrote all of those hymns to wed together theology and doxology. To wed together doctrine and worship. That's why Martin Luther wrote all of those hymns. The people of God needed some way to express from their hearts a genuine love and worship of God according to the truth. And that's what those hymns were birthed out of. Jonathan Edwards agreed with that, that when times of revival come, the people of God find themselves wanting to sing, right? That's Colossians 3. We're commanded to do that. Sing to the Lord, making melody to him with joy in our hearts. So I would say that because none of this that I've mentioned is possible apart from the Spirit of God, I would have to say that at least at the beginning, Asbury seems to be a genuine work of the, of the Lord. However, I need to say no for a number of other reasons, especially as I think from the 15th onward. As an outsider, I think a shift, a drastic shift took place on the 15th when the focus turned, seemed to turn away from Christ towards what everyone else thought, everyone in the world. So social media had taken root by that point, right? And Generation Z was being exalted and focused upon during the time of, of the revival. You go read Edwards and others on times of revival. When revival comes, it knows no age limits. It knows no socioeconomic categories. It, it just sweeps across the whole nation. And you've got hardened men and soft-spoken women both together weeping before the altar of God. The young and the old worshiping the Lord. So I would say that by the 15th, the focus was shifting away from God and shifting onto this thing that we call revival. Once you've focused on revival, you're no longer focusing on Christ. Once that happens, you've replaced Christ with something else. Many of the songs that were being sung were Bethel and Hillsong songs, which you guys know have very serious doctrinal problems, theological issues, and I would say that the fact that on the 16th, one day after the 15th, for those who need the help of math, maybe, maybe that was just for me, but on the 15th, a shift of focus happened. On the 16th, the school came out and said, we're no longer going to host meetings after the 24th. Now that tells me as an outsider that even the school saw something had shifted. And they were no longer going to continue on with these meetings. So, is Asbury genuine, genuinely of the Lord? I would say that aspects of it must be of the Lord. Otherwise, they wouldn't have happened. 
was, was the work corrupted? Probably. But as we'll now talk about next week, I think the most important thing for us to take away from Asbury is not whether or not it is a true work of God. The most important conclusion for us to draw from Asbury is the fact that as God's people, you and I are called to seek revival until the Lord brings it. So, and we'll focus on that next week. All right. Let's pray together. Lord, we do, we do thank you for the clarity of your word, and I, I pray that I pray that, that what you have to say to us in regard to these matters would not have been muddled this morning uh, through the, the ramblings of an empty, vain preacher. But God, that your spirit would truly be moving and working among us for your glory that you would be teaching us about these realities of revival, not so that we can focus on revival, because revival is not about revival. Revival is about you. So, Lord, please draw our eyes upward. Help us renew our hearts in the truth and, and, and renew our minds in the truth and put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Lord, help us put off the old man and put on the new as the ordained path to greater and more satisfying fellowship with you. Father, we pray for this grace. We pray for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear the benediction from Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. 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 May you go in the peace of Christ's name.